I want to start with a question tonight, and uh, uh, I was going to have the whiteboard up here, but instead of having someone try to see how they can spell or how they can't spell, I decided not to do that tonight. So I'm going to see how fast Michael Eaton is with putting your answers up there. So the question I want to ask to kind of start the, uh, the lesson tonight is this. What makes someone rich? In your eyes, what makes someone rich, someone wealthy? Uh, let's, try to, let's try to even look beyond a biblical idea and more of a, I guess, cultural or, or worldly philosophy and kind of in the eyes of the world. What makes someone rich or someone wealthy? Kelton? A good job. A good job. All right. What else? Ian? Money? Things. Things. You keeping up? He's doing pretty good. That's impressive. Yes. Love. That's good. Yes. Family? Yes. Children. It's not up there, so we can, we can put it up there. That's good. Yes. A big, house. a big house. That's what makes someone rich. Okay. What else? Being, being, content being content with what you have. Very good. Ethan, you got something? Money. Yes. <laughs> I was looking for something like that. You know, money. That definitely makes people rich. Yes. Knowledge. Knowledge. Yes. Very good. Business. Business. Makes people rich. Yes. Having more than they need. Very good. All right, Aaron, this could be dangerous. Ice cream. I like the way this kid thinks. Ice cream makes people rich. Marcus, what? Friends. Friends. If you have a lot of ice cream, you're going to have a lot of friends, right? Exactly. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's getting smaller and smaller. I can't really see. Uh, A couple more. What makes people rich? Yes. French fries. Now we're just getting silly. All right, any other kind of serious thing? When you, when you think of someone that's rich or wealthy, well, I mean, what, what, do you, what are some things that you think of? Yes? Um, people. Wise people. Wise people? Okay, that's good. Being happy? Being happy. Like, like queen or king? Like the queen or the king? Royal. Like royalty? Oh, okay, she, she defined it even better for us. Royalty, yes. Being a billionaire. Being a billionaire. <laughs> Forget about trillionaire. Let's do billionaire, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a couple more. I said not about the biblical. Forget about the biblical. Oh. It's okay. It's okay. That, that's good. That's good. Let's try to look at the other side of it because we're going to answer that in just a minute. Popular. Being popular. Okay. Yeah, a lot of these things up there, obviously, you may be able to see them. You may not be able to see them. But there's a lot of things that make people rich. Uh, how many in here would describe yourself as rich in the world standard? In the world standard. Anybody? Tonight, I'm very curious. I'm very curious because I'm going to be talking to you after church tonight about some of the vision offerings that we're going to be doing, some goals that we have. So, okay, we got one that's described themselves as rich according to the world. Ron, brother Ron, there's like a just, just, just adjusting my glasses. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, quickly, uh, anybody need a uh, handout tonight, a study guide? Quickly, anybody? Should have done that earlier. Come on. That's okay. That's okay. I just wanted to smack the table. <laughs> it's all good. We got another one over there. Another one up here. All right. Anyone else? Keep your hands up. It's kind of a running joke. It's all right. Pam back there in the back. Sharon over there? Okay. Very good. One of these days, you guys are going to completely shock me and surprise me, and all of you guys are going to have your study guides, and I might just fall over, have a heart attack or something. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Anyone else? Anyone else? We got it all? All right. Very good. All right. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of definitions that we could say about what makes people rich, uh, even some qualities. Um, 
especially in the world standard. And, and sometimes we think uh, in America, you know, if you have so much money, a certain amount of money, then you're rich, or a certain amount of things, then you're rich. Uh, before we get into this lesson tonight, I was kind of looking, and I think even Brother Vance, a couple weeks ago, he talked about this. The average global median, median individual income, anybody have any idea what it is? The average global median individual income. Anybody have any idea what it is? It's very low. $2,100 a year. $2,100 a year. That's what it is. The average. Now, how many make above $2,100 a year? Some of you don't want to, like, raise your hand. <laughs> then he's going to call on me. No. Most of us probably do, especially those that work jobs. You're probably going to make at least more than $2,100 a year because that's not a lot. So you think about it, in the world's economy, uh, Americans are very wealthy, are we not? We have a lot. And I was doing a little bit even more research on the, on the subject. The majority of Americans can place themselves in the top 37% of the world's income distribution. And the vast majority of Americans could even rank themselves comfortably inside the top 10%. That's kind of astounding when you think about it, because as Americans, obviously, we've been blessed, and God has blessed our nation, and sometimes we think we don't have as much as we have, and in comparison, we don't. That's true, uh, but according to the world standards, we have a lot more than what most people have. I read another statistic this morning. It said uh, about five years ago, it said the bottom 10% in the U.S. have by measure at least better than the top 10% in Russia. It's pretty astounding as well. The typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. So again, as Americans, we are incredibly rich. A lot of us are striving after riches. We all have a definition of what it means to be rich, what it means to be wealthy. If you're a Christian, the premise I'm trying to make and the point I'm trying to make tonight is this. As a Christian, we are indescribably rich indescribably rich. And it might not necessarily be according to the world standards. We might not necessarily have the money, the jobs, the businesses, the homes, uh, the cars that, that might, the world might say that this makes you rich. But as we've been talking about the past several weeks, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, we have so many heavenly blessings at our disposal as a Christian, as a child of God. And we've talked about some of the things that we are in Christ. So before we, again, dig in, what are some of the things that we've talked about that we are in Christ? Remember we said, I am, I am, I am, I am. What are some of those things? You can kind of really go through verse 3 through 6 and kind of look at, look at those. Anybody remember? What? I'm adopted. That was one of them. What else? I'm accepted. You remember? I am blessed. Yes. What else? I think there was one more. What? Redeemed. Yes, actually two more. Chosen, And then one more we talked about last week was in verse number seven. What? Forgiven. Yes. Those are just a few of the things that we are in Christ. And I want to continue that thought tonight. So let's go to start reading in verse number seven. We're going to continue the thought where we left off last week and then uh, finish that tonight. The Bible says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this day, Lord. I pray that you'd be at this lesson tonight, Lord, as we continue studying who we are in you. And that's really what the book of Ephesians is about. As we've been talking about our identity on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. God, I pray that you'd help our church to realize the, 
the great powerful truths that we're trying to unlock uh, within your word over the next several months. And God, I'm so thankful for the blessings that we have in you. And God, I pray that you'd help us all tonight, especially as Christians, as those that are, are your children, those that have trusted you for, for salvation. Help us to realize how indescribably rich we truly are. And Lord, I know it's easy for us to take for granted the riches and the wealth that we have in you. But God, I pray that you'd help us to continue to unlock um, the riches uh, according to your word. And God, I'm so thankful for, uh, for being chosen and accepted and, and blessed and forgiven and redeemed and all these things that we've talked about the past several weeks. Heavenly Father, we love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, what we have in Christ is unimaginable, yet countless Christians live their lives never truly tapping into the wealth that is at their disposal. I read a story about a, a woman who lived in an old shack during the days of the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He visited her in the shack one day and noticed a piece of paper nailed to the wall. When he asked her about it, she said that years before, she had cared for an old gentleman. And just before he had died, he had written a little note of appreciation to her, followed by his signature. Spurgeon convinced the little old lady to let him borrow the piece of paper, and he took it down to the bank, and upon reading it, they exclaimed, We've been wondering to whom the old man left all of his money. She apparently couldn't read, so Spurgeon helped her get the fortune. Here she had an indescribably for, or unimaginable fortune at her disposal that was pasted or taped or, or nailed to her wall. She couldn't read, so she didn't know what it was talking about. It was there, and yet she didn't take advantage of it. And I feel like sometimes as Christians, we do the same thing. We have all these blessings in Christ. We are indescribably rich, as the title suggests, and yet we don't take advantage of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want to try to do tonight is unlock these things. Now, that lady was a very wealthy woman, but she didn't know it. Ephesians describes our wealth in God. It's like taking inventory of our heavenly bank vaults. And remember, verses 3 through 14 are really one long sentence in the Greek. And when you break it down, you can separate it into three parts. And it's really as if the Trinity is all working together, uh, the triune God on our behalf. And here's what we see. I think we talked about this last week. Verses 3 through 6, first of all, the Father planned it. Verses 7 through 12, the Son paid for it. And verses 13 and 14, the Spirit sealed it. As we've been saying for weeks, there's an identity crisis in our land, and it seems like everything I watch here recently is speaking about identity. I was watching some things with uh, uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law this weekend just you know, at the house and, and watching different movies, Netflix or Hulu or whatever it was, and uh, it seems like everything is just tying back to what we've been preaching on, what, what we've been speaking on the past several months now. And it's just, it, it, it amazes me that the world in which we live in is struggling with our identity, and Christians are struggling with our identity. We don't truly know who we are. We're like, oh, I know who I am. But if we knew who we are, we'd act like it, right? And I feel like so many times, myself included, I struggle with this. And again, uh, my wife and I have been talking about this, and I, I struggle greatly uh, with, with acting like a Christian, like a child of God, like I've been chosen and accepted and, and redeemed and forgiven. Now get this down. Who you think you are defines how you behave. How you define yourself determines how you live. If you define yourself as a child of God, you're going to identify as a child of God. Then you should live like a child of God. But if you're not defining yourself as a child of God, if you're defining yourself in the world's standards, you know what you're going to live and how you're going to live according to the world's standards. There's a drill sergeant that barked to his new, new recruits. He said, all you dumbbells get moving. <laughs> and all but one obeyed the order. 
Angered by this seeming defiance, the sergeant marched up to the new recruit and growled at him. Well, well, there certainly are a lot of them, sir. <laughs> the point is, he didn't view himself as a dumbbell. When we come to Ephesians, though, we come to God's definition of ourselves. It should take all of our insecurities and make them powerless over us. How many ever feel insecure? Anybody? Anybody? Honestly, anybody struggle with insecurity? I think a lot of us do. Probably the majority of people probably in this church struggle with insecurity. And again, when you study out this passage and these passages over the next few months, what they're going to do is just blow us away. Because most people struggle with a low self-esteem, and, and I've been there many times where I've struggled with a low self-esteem. And sometimes when we struggle with the low self-esteem, what we do to compensate is we make others feel bad, right? We put other people down. Because we have a low self-esteem, low value of ourselves, and we can't even be around other people when things don't go according to our standards, our definition. But here's the truth. Ephesians 1, 2 and 3, really, obliterates that feeling. Or it should obliterate that feeling of low self-esteem. Because it doesn't matter what the world says or thinks about you. It doesn't matter who you say you are. What matters is who Christ says you are. And that's what we're learning. And that's what we're unlocking. And I have this down before we get to the first point. God made you. God saved you. And because of that, you're worth everything to him. Let's read that together. Ready? God made you. He saved you. And because of that, you're worth everything to him. Again, just that thought alone should help us obliterate that feeling of insecurity. Why are we so insecure with ourselves? We're trying to be someone that God has not intended us to be instead of being the person that he wants us to be. The first thing we see tonight in verse number seven is the benefits of redemption. The benefits of redemption in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. This verse is the start of the second breakdown showing us that the son, Jesus Christ, paid for all that we have. The blessing of salvation is something that we have in Christ alone. All the riches, all the blessings we have as a Christian, we only have because of being in Christ. Redemption is the word used for what God is doing here. The word redemption, I think I said this last week, but the word redemption is one of the richest words in the Bible. It conveys the idea of deliverance or setting a man free by paying a ransom. The word redeem means this, to purchase and set free by paying a price. To redeem means to purchase, to set free by paying a price. When Paul was writing this in the Roman society in which they were living, there were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And often they were bought and sold like pieces of furniture. But the good thing is, the good news is that a man or, or a woman that was uh, purchased as a slave, they could be purchased back and set free. It was a very common thing to be enslaved but it was a very beautiful thing to be redeemed. Let me try to help you guys get a hold of this and understand what redemption is. And it's going to be a kind of a, um, not a great illustration. But here's what God is doing. He's taking something that he already has, that's already his, and he's buying it back so that it's twice his. In the ancient world, when a soldier was captured in battle, his country could buy him back from the enemy. <laughs> or when a family was... Um, was in desperate financial situations. Sometimes they would sell one of their family members into slavery and then hopefully have enough money to pay back 
their family, to get their family member back. In a, in a, in a similar situation, it's not fully uh, um, in, in contextualization of, of this passage, but we do the same thing today with pawn shops. Anybody ever pawned anything at a pawn shop? Yeah, many of us have. You know, the purpose of a pawn shop, you know, you, you pawn off your possessions and, you know, hopefully you can get some money for it and then hopefully you can pay it back within a manner of time. And if you do, it's yours. If not, they're going to sell it. Now, that's kind of, in a sense, what they did in those times. You know, we, we pawn a lot of things. We might pawn jewelry or purses or electronics. But back in these times, back in the Bible times, they would kind of sell off family members as slaves and then hopefully buy them back. It wouldn't be a fun, wouldn't it? I know how my mind works, but wouldn't it be a funny thing if you walked into a pawn shop and tried to pawn off one of your kids? <laughs> I was just thinking about that this afternoon. I was like, that would be very comical. At least I think it would be comical. Some of you are like, that's not comical at all. I just think it would be comical if like husband and wife, they go in there, I'd like to pawn off my husband and see what I can get for him. Sir, you can't get anything. I'm sorry. He's worthless. There's not much worth in him. But anyway, I thought that was you know, completely funny, but it, totally off subject. But here's the truth. When God redeemed us, he did not expect us to pay it back. You know, if I pawn something at the pawn store, hopefully I can pay it back within a matter of time so I can get it back. But when God redeemed us, when he purchased us, he didn't expect us to pay it back because we couldn't pay it back, right? But here's the thing. God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and thanks. God doesn't save us to hold us hostage. He saves us to set us free. And that's the great truth. He doesn't save us to hold us hostage. You're here, I've, I've saved you, I've redeemed you, now you are my slave. He saves us to set us free. Now as a child of God, we should be his servant, right? We should, but it's not in the sense of a hostage. It's a servant in the sense of, here's my master that has done everything for me, now what can I do for him? There should be a willingness, a willingness to serve our master, and here's the truth. All of this that I'm talking about is all contingent upon Jesus' death on the cross. It's inexhaustible grace. You never have to wonder if you're forgiven because in Christ you've already been forgiven. God's grace is overwhelming. It's unlimited riches that all of us have at our disposal. The benefits of redemption cannot be untold without speaking of the forgiveness that we find because in verse seven it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word forgive means to carry away. This reminds me of the ritual in the Jewish days of atonement when the high priest sent the scapegoat into the wilderness. The priest killed one of the two goats and sprinkled his blood before God on the mercy seat. Then he confessed Israel's sin over the live gate, live goat, and then he had that goat taken away into the wilderness to be lost. Redemption implies a huge price had been paid. Redemption implies the recovery from sins, talking about forgiveness. Redemption implies, or forgiveness implies lavish and inexhaustible grace. Redemption implies being salvaged from loss. It implies new beginning and new belonging. It implies new purposes that Jesus Christ gives us. When he redeemed us, he gave us a new hope. It's like sometimes you, you get a fresh start. You have a new job or a new career or a new home. You feel like it's a fresh start. When Jesus saved us, he gave us a fresh start. He gave us a chance to be free. That's what redemption does. Christ died to carry away our sins that we might never again be seen that way. John 1, 29 talks about that. 
No, no written accusation stands against us because our sins have been taken away. And I have this, I think I have this in your notes. Sin makes us poor, but grace makes us rich. Sin makes us poor, sin made us poor, but grace makes us rich. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, and we asked that question, how rich are we, or what are some qualities of being rich? The truth is, as a Christian, we are indescribably wealthy, indescribably rich, and it's all on the basis of God's amazing grace. I'm going to talk about a little bit more about that in just a minute. Second point here tonight is this, verse number eight. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The gifts of wisdom and understanding. So we see in verse number eight, the gifts of wisdom and understanding. The word wisdom means this, seeing and knowing the truth. Seeing and knowing the truth. It's seeing and knowing what to do. It grasps the great truths of life. This wisdom is only found in Christ Jesus. It's not found in a textbook. It's only found in Christ. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom with all I get and get understanding. Over and over and over, Solomon is talking about wisdom and having a wise son and being wise and not foolish. Wisdom is defined in the dictionary as this, the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Wisdom has nothing to do with intelligence, wealth, or even age. You know, all of us have met someone that is very old or older that is not wise. All of us have met someone that's older that is very wise. All of us have met someone that is younger that is not wise at all. But we've also met someone younger that is very wise. So it doesn't have anything to do with age, and especially in the eyes of God, it has everything to do with who we are in him and what he gives us if we continue to seek him. Wisdom is not the same as being smart. Smart means a person knows a lot of facts and information. I know a lot of people that are smart, have a lot of facts and information within them. But wisdom means that a person knows what to say and how to act in different situations. Wisdom is more than just book knowledge. It's applying what you know to your life and using it to make right choices. There's a story told of a proud young man who came to Socrates, the great philosopher, asking for knowledge. He walked up to the philosopher and said, Oh, great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. In response, Socrates led the young man through the streets to the sea and chest deep into the water. Then he asked the young man, Now tell me what it is that you want. Knowledge, oh wise Socrates, said the young man with a smile. Socrates put his hands on the man's shoulders and pushed him under the water. 30 seconds later, the wise philosopher lifted up the pupil out of the water. What is it again that you want, he asked. Wisdom, O oh great and wise Socrates, the young man said under labored breath. Socrates again took the man and held him under the water. This time longer, 30 seconds, 35, 40, 45. Finally, Socrates let him up. The man gasped for air as Socrates asked him, What do you want, young man? He labored to answer, knowledge, O wise and wonderful. To this response, Socrates then plunged the man again underwater, this time holding him close to a minute. As the young man came up, panting for oxygen, Socrates asked, what do you want? To which his response was, air. <laughs> the young man screamed, I need air. Socrates said, when you desire wisdom as you have just desired air, then you will have it. It's a great truth. So we see in this verse that we have the gift of wisdom. 
wherein he hath abounded toward, toward us in all wisdom. God wants to give us his wisdom. He wants to, 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 to display that, that, that blessing upon our lives, but we have to continue to seek him. But then it says in prudence. Prudence is actually, when you look at this verse and study out this verse, it's understanding. The word prudence means this, seeing how to use and do the truth. It's where we get our word understanding. It's understanding and insight. It's the ability to solve day-to-day problems. It's the practical understanding of all things. And again, the, what we have in Christ is this ability to be wise. I'm not saying you're going to be smart, but you have the ability to be wise. And you have the ability to have understanding. The understanding that comes from on high. Then verse number nine, unlocking the mystery. Now, I wanted to go deeper into this thought tonight in verse number nine, but we're going to we're going to continue this thought a little bit next week in the weeks to come. Verse number nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. How many have ever known a secret? Anybody? Anybody have a secret you want to share tonight? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? <laughs> Justin, go ahead. Uh, yeah, pass. <laughs> I thought so. Uh, what, what, what's the great thing about knowing a secret? Let's ask this question. What's the great thing about knowing a secret? You can trust your friends to keep it. What's another thing? Some adults. What, what's the great thing about having a secret or knowing a secret? Well, that you know the secret. That you know the secret. Yes, that is a great thing. How many have ever known that... Hang on, put your hand down. How many have ever known that someone had a secret, but you didn't know the secret, and it just irked you? Right? <laughs> That happen right now? You just like slowly putting your hand up, like Marcus has it. Oh, okay, she's like one of those spies. You know, she knows all the tactical tricks and stuff. Do you cave in? No. <laughs> He's been through it all. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. How many? All right, let's ask this question. How many are bad at keeping a secret? Anybody? Many of the kids, all right. We got, depends on the secret. <laughs> so we got stipulations. So don't tell, don't tell Christina anything, please. She is horrible at keeping secrets. Any other adults besides Stephanie and Christina? All right, we got Colton, yes. Your whole family should be raising their hands? Well, they're, it's a secret, all right? Why'd you just unveil the secret? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, again, all of us have have either known a secret or there's been a secret about us. And sometimes we don't like it, obviously, when the secret is about us because we want to know what the secret is. And we're wondering why people won't tell us. But when Paul uses this word mystery here in verse number 9, it says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. He's not speaking of something kind of, oh, it's mysterious, it's eerie, it's spooky. You know, we think about that sometimes. It's very mysterious. And I think of like a, an old you know, haunted mansion or whatever it is. But that's not what he's saying here. He's speaking of something else. What he's talking about is the secret. And this secret that he's talking about has been locked up. And it's really previously unknown truths. William Barclay said this about this passage. A mystery in the Bible is not something mysterious and difficult to understand. It's a truth that has been locked up in God's plans for ages until he was ready to reveal it to man. There were clues and hints about this mystery throughout the Old Testament. But now God has finally made plain as day what he wants the whole world to know. 
And Paul says that this was a mystery of God's will, the secret of God's will, and he's going to unveil this mystery, this secret. And that's what he's been doing the past several verses, unveiling this secret. Talking about all the things that Christ has done, all the accomplishments. Again, verse number 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasures which he has purposed in himself. And there's a lot more I want to go at at this verse, but I'm not going to for sake of time. Well, go back to verse number 8. There's something I didn't focus on that I want to end tonight with. The Bible says, where he hath abounded. I want you to circle that word, underline, highlight, whatever you need to do. Where he hath abounded. The word abound means to super abound. It means to be in massive excess. It means to exceed above and beyond. So what Paul is saying here, not just with this verse, but the previous verses, is that Jesus Christ wants to super exceed, abound in massive excess all of his blessings. All the blessings we have in Christ, he wants to abound to us. How many have ever had your gutters overflow? Anybody? You know what I mean? When your gutters are overflowing and it kind of creates that waterfall effect? Yeah. It's kind of annoying and you know you stand there and you have to have an umbrella. There's there's been a lot of times where I've had to, you know, scrape out the, the junk and the, the leaves and things like that that are in our gutters because it creates that natural waterfall. It's kind of cool, you know, if, if you don't if you intend to do it or if you don't intend to do it. Uh, but let, let's let's compare here. You know, that 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 can be annoying, can it? Especially when the water is just running down and then you have to walk under the water and you're gonna get wet if you don't have an umbrella or a rain hat or something like that. But imagine you know, that water pales in comparison to, like, the Niagara Falls, right? And the water that's dumping down over the edge of the falls or Victoria Falls. You know, the water that's coming from our roof and from our gutters is, you know, a couple gallons maybe. But just imagine hundreds of millions of gallons of water pouring down on you. Now, it would kill you, but that's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make is, is this. What we have in Christ is something, in a sense, like that. It's like standing at the base of Niagara Falls and just looking up to heaven and saying, all right, God, pour it out. And he just pours and pours and pours and pours and pours and pours, and it never runs dry. Isn't that awesome when you think about that? It is. Now, eventually, when the rain stops in those gutters, it's, it's going to trickle and it's going to slowly stop. But Niagara Falls, that water is continually flowing, right? Continually flowing. That's God's blessings. And that's what he's talking about when he says to abound, to superabound. It's a staggering amount of water that is coming over the falls. That's a picture of what it's like to be in Christ Jesus. Christ has abounded. He's super exceeded towards us in forgiveness. Unlimited riches are at our disposal purely on the basis of his grace. Again, it's like standing at the base of the falls and letting the water Pound you. It doesn't stop. That's what we have in Christ. And it's all because of his grace that he gives to us freely. Now think about that. What we have in Christ tonight as we've looked at. We've talked about the benefits of redemption. Being redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's all according to his grace. Grace is something undeserved, unmerited. But yet Christ gives it to us freely. Those that are his children, those that have trusted him as their savior. 
So think about how wealthy you truly are as a Christian. We have a lot to be thankful for, do we not? And yet a lot of times we, we focus on all the negatives. We focus on all that we don't have. And even in comparison to, to America, to the rest of the world, we are far more wealthy than the majority of this world. But as a Christian, that even pales in comparison. We have far, 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 far more in Christ than we have apart from Christ. So the point I'm trying to make tonight and really going forward is to be thankful for the blessings you have. Take those blessings. Take what God has given you. The Niagara Falls of blessings, in a sense, the water that is just tumbling down and tumbling down, and say, all right, God, what else can you give me? What else can you give me? What else can you give me? As I seek you, as I look to please you, as I look to obey you and, and do your will, what else can you give me? That, that's what we're going to look at a little bit next week as we unlock the mystery, the secrets that are being revealed to us in God's word. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded, super exceeded toward us in all wisdom. God's given us all the wisdom we need, all the understanding, but we have to take it. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the blood, to his blood, or to his good pleasure, sorry, which he hath proposed or purposed in himself. All right.